Hey everyone, this is Mike Skinner. I want to welcome you to the sermon podcast for Sweetwater Christian Church. We are glad that you are interested in joining us as we follow Christ. If you'd ever like to support our ministry financially or just learn more about us, head on over to sweetwaterchristian.org. Thanks and God bless. Have you ever done something stupid at the worst possible time? Like there's doing stupid things, which many of us do, and then there's doing stupid things at the like very worst possible time in which to do said stupid thing. No one, okay, me either. Um, <laughs> next topic. Uh, so f- many years ago, uh, a school called me in to do some long-term subbing for a teacher that had needed a replacement. And so I came in and kind of finished out the last quarter of the year. And I was pretty young at the time. I was like 19 or 20 years old, teaching these 14, 15 years olds. And and I really wanted this job as well. And so it was kind of like this open audition for this job. So I'm in there, I'm teaching, killing it, you know me. And I'm waiting to kind of hear what the school's plans are for the next year, right? They've not really, we've not really spoken about how far does this go or is there any interest in, in keeping me on beyond this year. And I kind of hear through the grapevine and check online and see that the school had opened up the job online and was accepting resumes. So I'm not going to lie, I was a little disappointed they didn't come to me right, and say, hey, the job is yours. We don't even need to go ask anybody. We can search the whole world and never find someone as special as you. I did not say that, though that's how I imagined it in my mind. Instead, I just kind of realized, oh, they're taking applications. I guess maybe I should just have them like print my stuff off again, put it back in the stack just in case there's a shot here. And so a couple weeks after they kind of opened up the job, I emailed the superintendent and the principal, just like a heads up, you know, we've not really talked about this, but I am interested in the job and in continuing this next year. You have all my stuff, right? So just here's my notice. You know, I hope you'll consider me for the job. And the next morning, that was like a Wednesday, the next morning, my alarm goes off. But my mind and brain and body don't wake up, and I sleep right through the alarm and don't show up for work, which is not what you should do the day after you've asked your bosses to extend you and make this a permanent thing. I get up, it's like third period, <laughs> I'm freaking out, I walk into school and the principal is sitting at my desk with kind of an amused, annoyed look on his face, and my stomach is just sinking, and he is really enjoying the moment. I mean, I don't know if you've ever seen the face of someone who's just really satisfied with how life has worked out for them that day, but all the conditions were right, he was really enjoying it. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm very embarrassed. I'm really upset with myself. And I'm just thinking, like, could you have worse timing, right? I mean, maybe the, the most important time here, literally, as soon as I have to ask them for the job, I, I sleep through it. Now, the boss I had at the time, the principal David, was the kind of person who was blunt and honest. And in a leader, that can often be a really good quality. Maybe sometimes you don't always appreciate what you're going to hear, but at least you can trust it, right? At least you know, like, if they said it, they said it. There's really no reason to doubt it. And after like apologizing, stumbling over myself, he was like, just forget about it. Right? It's not a big deal. It's not going to affect anything. We're glad that you're here this morning. So I was able to kind of move on um, with, my, with my life. Um, this morning, I want to look at with you a story of someone in the Bible who does something really stupid and does it in one of the worst possible times and kind of see how they 
recovered. We're going to take a week off from our generosity series um, and spend some time in the end of John's gospel. The message this morning is titled, In Rehab with Peter. Peter's going to go to rehab, and you and I, I think, are going to need to join him and can take some lessons. So John chapter 21, if you have a Bible, flip open with me. John chapter 21, in rehab with Peter this morning. If you have not kind of picked up on it or noticed, um, at least the second half of this year so far, anytime we have kind of a, a standalone week, I've been heading to the end of John's gospel and preaching a passage I've never preached before in my life. And so I think by the end of the year, we'll probably have like a scattershot series, um, a very, every little passage here at the end of John's gospel. But we're going to read a, a story this morning uh, about Peter and his kind of restoration and his relationship to Jesus. It's a very profound, very moving, very emotional passage. And there's a lot here for us to learn from. John 21, we'll pick it up in verse 15. Jesus has resurrected. He's appeared to his disciples as a group. And now we read this. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he had said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were Young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted, but when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. One of the first words Peter heard from Jesus were these words, follow me. And this is one of the last things Peter hears from Jesus, follow me. You get to hear this the very personal one-on-one interaction between Jesus and Peter, and you get this repetition. Do you love me? You know that I love you. Take care of my people. Do you love me? You know that I love you. Take care of my people. Do you love me? You know that I love you. Take care of my people. This threefold repetition. And now this story doesn't make quite as much sense as it does if you understand the context. If you understand the whole kind of story surrounding Peter and his relationship to Jesus, there are clues just within the passage itself that we should be really thinking of a much bigger picture to understand the encounter, what's going on here. I don't know if it's cross-cultural, but it seems in this passage, the way that Jesus addresses Peter, Simon, son of John, this would be like his formal full name. I don't know if you were a kid or have kids right now, if you've ever gone like the formal full name addressing them, usually means you're in trouble, right? It's not your nickname, it's not your short name. Growing up, I knew if I heard David, they weren't trying to distinguish me from other Michael Skinner's. It was protect myself. Something bad has happened. I've done something bad. We get the very formal, full name. A relationship is is kind of being restarted here between Peter and Jesus. And you get this threefold repetition of pretty much the exact same thing. Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? It responds the same. You know that I love you. You know that I love you. You know that I love you. Jesus gives him the same response. Okay, then I've got a job for you. Take care of my people. Take care of my people, take care of my people, follow me. Even if it means sacrifice, even if it means pain. 
Something's happened between Peter and Jesus that makes this story all the more significant. The first time Jesus asked Peter, do you love me? He says, do you love me more than the rest of these? And this kind of clues us in a little bit to Peter's personality and the history that they've had. Peter is known among the disciples, one of the first disciples to follow Jesus. He's known as, as one of the more bold disciples. He's usually one of the first to offer up his opinions. He's one of the leaders of the disciples, both before this moment and after this moment. What kind of lead God's people into the future? He's the one of the first to kind of offer a full-throated confession in Jesus and his identity as the Son of God. At the same time, there's this kind of double-sided personality to Peter where he'll get something really, really right and then in the same breath get it really, really wrong. At the transfiguration, he says, you are the Son of God. And Jesus says, you've seen this correctly. And then Peter then says, but you've got it wrong, Jesus. You're not going to suffer. And Jesus is like, get behind me, Satan. It's like high, low. And this is kind of where Peter lives, the highs and the lows. And you get this threefold repetition from Jesus because Peter has failed Jesus three times. And Jesus seeks out Peter to rehab this relationship, to rehabilitate Peter standing with him, to make sure that everything is right and ready to move forward. Do you love me more than these? This seems to be the type of question that Peter might have answered differently before his failure. This seems exactly like, the, exactly like the kind of thing he would have pumped up himself. Like, uh, yeah, Jesus, way more. Have you seen these chumps? These are not the brightest and most committed people, but I am up here with my love for you. In fact, right before the betrayal of Jesus and Peter's denial, Jesus predicts these things. He predicts he'll be betrayed by one of his disciples, Judas. Peter says, no matter what happens, even if that means death, Jesus, I'll never betray you. And Jesus goes, funny you mentioned that, Peter. Before the next time you hear a rooster, three times you'll have failed me. Peter's unable to compute this. He says, if everyone else falls away, I won't. I don't think this is disingenuous either. I mean, when I read Peter, I don't see him as just someone who's like speaking blind arrogance. I feel like he means this and thinks it. He feels it in the moment. But he'll find out and did find out that there was going to come a time, a moment where What he felt about his faith couldn't live up to that moment. Couldn't survive the pressure of that moment. So perhaps because Jesus had made this prediction, when they come to arrest Jesus, Peter's the one who busts out his sword. Let's fight. Jesus, put your your sword away, Peter. You're still on board here. You don't understand it. And Peter, confused and scared, follows Jesus as he goes through his kind of pseudo-trial. And a young girl, if you know the story, if you're familiar with it, it's told in all the Gospels, a young girl comes up to Peter, a little servant girl, and says, hey, weren't you with this guy? And Peter, once so bold, now can't stand up to this servant girl. So I don't, I don't know anything about this guy. And he follows him. It happens again and again in a different Gospel, we're told, that after this third denial, he hears the rooster and remembers Jesus' prediction. And we're told that however it was working out, he was close enough and had kind of followed close enough to make eye contact with Jesus. And after this third denial, they kind of lock eyes, and Peter, we're told, weeps bitterly. Peter's not the type, I don't think, to do a whole lot of crying and introspection. This is probably not like, oh, Peter's weeping again, weepy Peter. 
Peter's hitting rock bottom in this moment. And yet, after his resurrection, Jesus comes to Peter. He seeks him out. He says, we need to have a one-on-one conversation. Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? And, and watch this. Peter's hurt. Jesus keeps asking him this. As you might imagine, he, he would be. You can see even in Peter's answer, he's no longer really leaning on his own confidence or knowledge. He's saying, you know that I love you. I've learned a lot about myself, and not all of it's been very flattering in the last few days, but you know, you know everything. You know that I, I love you. You know that there's real affection for you, even though I so magnificently kind of stumbled. Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Though Peter is hurt by Jesus' repeated questions, what he can't see in this moment is that Jesus is actually offering him quite the gift in this conversation. Jesus is walking Peter through a moment of restoration in their relationship. That's profoundly beautiful, and that I'm sure Peter is infinitely grateful for after the fact. A good leader or communicator will do this, right? The, there's one way in which you might have conflict between two people, and you'll need to move forward in that relationship, working, family, and you kind of move on. And there's one way to do this where you don't quite ever acknowledge what happened. You both kind of vaguely have an idea that something went wrong, someone did something wrong. Then you kind of move forward hoping that things can improve and you can continue to work together. But Jesus doesn't work this way. He doesn't work this way with Peter. He doesn't work this way with you and I. Jesus says, no, we're going to talk about it. And this talking about it is not so much meant to shame you, as Peter maybe felt in that moment, right? I'm hurt that this third time you're asking me, as much as it is to make sure that you know fully what the situation is. I know you denied me. I know it was three times. I know how painful that third time was for you. And so now I'm offering you a gift. Walk with me back down this road. Let's undo this together. Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? What a beautiful gift that Jesus gives to Peter here. The other Gospels show Peter still with the disciples, and in some cases leading the disciples after the resurrection of Jesus, but we don't get this personal encounter. So we know that Peter's stuck along, and and Peter's kind of been restored. But without this personal encounter, you might imagine Peter maybe still feeling some pangs of disappointment and guilt and shame. Without this prediction from Jesus of Peter's death, you might imagine Peter later on in life experiencing suffering and wondering if this is Jesus getting him back because of those denials. He's still a little disappointed or upset with me. But Jesus says, I'll have none of this. We'll know exactly where we stand. Follow me. And let's walk backwards. Let's undo this threefold denial. Let's go to rehab together so you know exactly where you stand and can move forward into the future. If you're like me, following Jesus does not mean that you're living this perfect life free of failure, disappointment. What happens to a lot of us is we imagine that once we're a Christian, things are supposed to be much better. And and in a sense, they are. As we receive the Spirit and are sanctified, we are to grow and mature in our faith. And yet, over and over again, Christians fall and they fail and often in significant ways. And we're often thrown on ourselves, though, to imagine that only we have fallen in the specific way that we've fallen. Only we have failed in the specific way that we've failed. 
And despite maybe intellectually knowing this is not the case, we often, I think, if you're like me again, still deal with this creeping, nagging question of, what if my failure is just worse than everybody else's? What if what I've experienced is just a little too far down the road than what everyone else has experienced? And sometimes by trying to like sterilize our church environment and the conversations we have with one another and what we share with one another, we can unintentionally kind of further this narrative. Like Christians might struggle, but they're kind of cute, silly struggles, right? Like I accidentally said a bad word. It's, it's like the weaknesses you describe in an interview when asked for your weaknesses. I mean, you're really bragging about strengths, right? What are your weaknesses of life? Sometimes I work too hard, but I'm working on it, right? I mean, this is, we often think this is what other Christians struggle with. Sometimes they pray too much and they don't remember to love their neighbor. I don't love my neighbor and I don't pray. And I, I've been actively on a revenge mission against my neighbor for seven years. I'm in a different league. I'm in a league of my own over here. This is not the same thing. There's levels to this and I'm on a different level. And yet with Peter, we can see, I think, one of the most profound betrayals of Christ that he experiences. And we can see with Peter that it's just this type of person that Jesus chooses. It's just this type of person that Jesus says, no, this is how my church will move forward. This is who will lead my people. This is who will be my disciple, someone who follows me. It's the alcoholic it's the drug addict. It's the abuser and the abused. And every other thing that you can think of that find their place in Jesus' church, despite their failings and flaws, despite the bottoms they've hit, still being called by Jesus to love him, to take care of his people, to follow him. We see in the story that perhaps Jesus most important characteristic that he looks for in his disciples above all others is this love for him, this affection toward him, this repentant affection toward him, this affection that comes on the other side of failure. And as Peter's being set up for success into the future, you and I, I think, are called to model and will be forced to model the experience that Peter has and the way he goes through this. Like I said, it's a good thing for some conflict to be addressed, for it not to be so vague, for us not to have to just assume things are okay, more or less. This same principal had to obviously put up a lot with me. They offered me the job. I think it was the next year. Uh, I was having my first observation, and his name's David, and, and, and Chris Henderson, who was working at the school, still is, but was working there with me, was goading me kind of all week, like, you know, David's going to get in there, you're going to crumble. I mean, the pressure is going to be way too much for you. You know how friends do, you know, lovingly. Like, you'll fail, you'll get fired. I won't help you, but it'll be fun to watch. And so David kind of comes in, and, and I'm a little nervous, but we're going with the lesson, and it goes really well. And David's on his way out of the classroom. The period's over, and I pick up my phone. And what I was meaning to do was text Chris Henderson. And I was, wrote out the text. David was just here, nailed it. But because I was thinking of David, I don't know if this has ever happened to you, I actually typed in his name as the recipient of this text. Right, The timing has to be just perfect because only as soon as you hit send do you realize, oh no, this is not going to the person I wanted it to go. Come back, come back, come back, come back. A sinking feeling hits my stomach. I'm very familiar with this feeling. 
and it, I mean, David has not even left the room. I can see his feet walking out of the doorway. I can hear his phone peeing as the text of my impending doom reaches his phone. And I'm like, oh my gosh. And so I immediately text Chris after like 10 times checking, make sure it was going to Chris. First of all, David came. It was fine. Second of all, I just texted David saying how great I did. And then it was a waiting game, right? And all I'm hoping is like, please text me back quickly or like walk back into the room and say something. Like, I don't want to sit here and imagine what your reaction is, that kind of thing. And after a couple hours, which I'm sure he did just so I could kind of sit in it a little bit, he texts me back, something comforting, joking. So I'm like, you done good, kid, right? And all of a sudden, I'm relieved, right? I know where I stand with him. It was embarrassing. We'll laugh about it but everything's okay. We can kind of move on. It's been addressed. There's no elephant in the room anymore. Something happened, but we've talked about it. We're moving on from it. This is the gift Jesus gives Peter. It's not, I've denied you three times, but I kind of understand that that's okay, and I'll still kind of follow you and just kind of beg for mercy and kind of expect grace to be there. No, Jesus says, let's walk through this together, you and I, because you need to be sure about what's happened and where we stand and what the future holds for you. There's a scholar who who said the work of the church can only ever go forward, Gary Burge, can only ever go forward when we are unburdened of our destructive memories through the gracious forgiveness of God. True for Peter, as it is you and I, the work of the church, the work of God in and through us, can only go forward when we're unburdened by our destructive memories through the gracious forgiveness of God. It's not in a vague hope that Jesus is still okay with us after we've failed, that you and I are called to proceed with our lives as disciples. It's within a specific, humble, yet confident understanding that despite our failures, we are still loved and forgiven and called to move forward. Peter has this relationship rehabilitated here with Jesus. You and I, at some point in our lives, might experience something probably not as dramatic as what Peter goes through here. Perhaps it feels that way. And we'll need to join Peter in rehab. We'll need to walk through the same process. In fact, I think this is in some ways a model for our relationship with Christ at all times. As people who have already began to follow Jesus, we've got to somehow deal with and face our failures be able to work through that and come out on the other side with Christ. There's a dichotomy, though, a false one that that Peter has to deal with here. And the false dichotomy goes like this. You can either have faith or you can be a failure. But it's faith or failure. failure. One or the other. If you fail, that meant something was wrong with your faith. If you've got faith, that means you're not going to fail. I would humbly suggest that Perhaps that's not quite the opposites that we think they are. So there's this beautiful moment in the Gospel of Luke where Jesus has predicted Peter's denial. Where Peter goes, you know, Satan's asked to sift through you, but I've prayed for you, Peter. He says, I've prayed that after you return, your faith won't fail you. Not, notice not if. And how interesting is it that Jesus doesn't pray that Peter won't deny him. I feel like that would be our prayer. If someone had, had come and said, like, hey, you know this person, they're going to fall spectacularly. I'd be like, okay, I'm going to pray that they don't go through this situation. 
Jesus, though, perhaps just his knowledge of this, just how it's going to work, says, no, I'm praying for after the fact. When you return, not if, but when you return, your faith will somehow be deepened or strengthened. Maybe you can come through this spectacular failure with something better and more solid and more firm. In fact, I think that a lot of the most mature Christians that I know who have received and understand God's love for them at a deep level, who are able to offer that love indiscriminately to the people around them, are often those who have gone through some pretty big failures. And to the extent that they've been able to accept and acknowledge and deal with that, the extent that they're kind of rooted firmly in a faith that is different than it was otherwise. Perhaps we learn from Peter, from Jesus' prayer for Peter, that there's a way in which you can fail, and yet your faith doesn't have to fail you. There's a way in which you can fail and fall, in which your faith doesn't get destroyed or crushed or pushed aside, but instead is somehow deepened and resolved, made more firm and more beautiful. There's a way in which you can fail and the disappointment of that failure, the shame of that failure, doesn't have to be the last word for you or your relationship with Jesus. Instead, you can walk through this restorative process with him. I keep coming back as I read this passage to what a gift Christ gives Peter here. Though he can't see it in the moment, as often is the case with many of our deepest blessings, Jesus giving him the opportunity to threefold say out loud, I love you, I love you, I love you, is something that is probably going to powerfully shape him and form him in the years to come. It's something he'll be able to hold on to and have. that will be able to counteract these kind of destructive memories and the disappointment and shame he might otherwise have experienced. I'd love for you to engage with a thought process with me. In many of the Gospels, Peter's betrayal of Jesus' denials is seen in contrast set side by side next to Judas and his betrayal of Jesus. Remember Judas, excuse me, one of the disciples, Judas betrays Jesus. Judas takes his life and so is not around when the resurrected Christ comes to meet his disciples. But I wonder if if Judas had been around, whether we might have expected Jesus to come after Judas. The same way that Jesus approaches Simon Peter here for a conversation, I wonder if, if we had to put, if we had a guess on this, if we would have guessed that perhaps Jesus also would have said, hey, Judas, let's talk. And if that talk might be a little less shaming, guilt-provoking, wag finger in your face, a little bit more, let's get through this together. This doesn't have to define you. This doesn't have to define your faith. It's speculation. But everything I know about Jesus, everything I read in the Gospels, would lead me to say that probably, this is probably the case. This is probably what would have happened. Judas is probably not going to quietly walk away into the sunset. At the very least, there'll be a conversation. Jesus tells a parable like this. The one might go away. I'll leave the 99 and chase down that one. The one is not getting out so easily. 
without my attention, my intentionality. And yet Judas is never around to have a discussion like this. He's never around to move past his failure and betrayal. But note, it's not because of something in Christ's heart. It's not because of some resentment on his part, unwillingness on his part to be reconciled to Judas. The only difference between Judas and Peter is that Judas removed himself from the possibility. Judas walked away from the ability to have this transformative encounter with Christ. Peter, by keeping his eyes on Christ, by falling at a distance, by sticking around, though it was painful and though it was a failure, I mean, it's as big of a failure as a failure can be, by sticking around, by staying within distance of Christ, he sets himself up for this encounter where Jesus approaches him and he's able to be reconciled to Jesus. I don't know where you are in your, your faith. I know that there's some in our congregation who are dealing with loss. I know that there are some who are dealing with personal failures. I know there are some who are dealing with the failures of others that have hurt them. I know that there are some in our congregation who do probably have this, this nagging question that, that my failures are unlike other people's failures. Sure, every, all Christians fall, but my falling is of a different nature. It's qualitatively different. And perhaps we try to move forward on this vague assumption that everything is probably still okay. Though I've fallen, though this has happened, though I've experienced this, everything's probably still okay, and I'll just kind of keep taking one step in front of another. But I would suggest this morning that you've been given a gift much better than that. You don't, you don't have to move forward, even after your biggest, most personal, most public failure, with this kind of vague hope that things will work out in the end. You can receive, you can come to Christ, and you can walk through that failure. You can own it and name it, acknowledge it, look at it with Jesus, and still hear him say, follow me, take care of my people. Still understand what your relationship is and what that standing is in that relationship. You and I will probably not have this kind of incarnate, embodied conversation with Christ that Peter has. Where Jesus comes, and you have a discussion about whatever it is, and you're able to real confidently put it behind you, move forward, take the lesson, appreciate the way your faith has been formed and deepened and and just move on into the future. But this is one of the things that's on offer to us in the spiritual discipline of formation, particularly in confession. You and I are called to confess our sins to God. One of the reasons we're called to confess, and, and one of the reasons that it's helpful to put bone meat on those bones in confession, be specific about the ways we have fallen and failed, is so that it no longer has to hold us back, enslave us. Paradoxically, it's when we name them, it's when we really deal with them and put them in the light that we're able to say, okay, it's either dealt with or not dealt with. It's when it's kind of tucked away in a closet and we're just hoping that Jesus will overlook it in the way we would like him to overlook it, that those things can often kind of attach themselves to us and drag along with us, sometimes unbeknownst to us. It's in confession where we go, we have the confidence because of Christ's death for us, because of God's love for us, that nothing will separate us. No failing, no disappointment, no shame, no guilt. 
that we can say it was three times, Christ. Three times I said I didn't know you. And I thought I would never do that. And I've never felt hurt and pain and embarrassment the way I did in that moment, the way I feel even when I think about it. It's in confession, it's in that moment in prayer or in community where we can hear Christ say to us all the same, come and follow me. Do you love me? And we can say kind of half-heartedly, yeah. Despite my failings, here's what I've, I've kind of recognized about Christians is they're not often so sure about everything but most of them at a baseline have kind of this burning in their heart. It's described by one of the disciples in the Gospels, which is, where else would we go for life? Right? Despite the situation around me, there's still just kind of this nagging feeling on the inside of my soul that there's just no other place for me to be, for me to go. So as confusing as things get, as off track as things get, I still kind of always have this orientation towards you. You love me? Yes. Okay. Take care of my people. This is how that your love for me will be expressed. Do you love me? Okay, well, the road that I took is going to be the road that you take. It's going to involve suffering. I want to give you a heads up on that. Follow me. The follow me that Jesus gives here to Peter at the end of John's gospel is of a different kind of instruction than the original follow me that Peter has. It's a much more victorious follow me. Does this make sense? If, if Jesus were to say to Peter, hey, you're going to die as a way to bear witness to my name for your faith, but still follow me. Before Jesus himself dies, defeats death, comes out victorious on the other side, it just feels a little different than for the risen Christ, who's just went through death, come out on the other side to say, follow me. Then the, then the news that, okay, I might die as well, it just rings a little different. Then the path you imagine ahead of you, you might go, oh, it's, it's been blazed already. Someone's already walked this path. I'm able to, to kind of integrate and understand what's coming for me and what my call is in a new, more profound, more beautiful way. As we come to the table, as we do every week, I think this is one of the things on offer for us at the table. The ability to come in an, an embodied, physical way. If, again, if you're like me, I'm just guessing most of you are, in any given week, you've probably done some things that you're not so proud of. You've probably failed Christ in big and small ways. You're probably not quite able to come to the table with a whole ton of pride. And this is not, not all the time, and I would never suggest Christians need this kind of like guilt-ridden, woe-is-me, I'm the smallest little dirtiest creature in the world type attitude. There are some weeks that are better than others, at least, again, for me. I can really only speak for myself. Some weeks where I did an okay job, feel, feel, feel okay about it, and still understand intellectually I'm not worthy, right? Who can be worthy of God's love and Christ's sacrifice? But hey, I'm responding in an okay way. Then there are other weeks where I'm like, oh, man, I mean, this is as complete opposite as one person can go. I don't even know how I'm necessarily here this morning, but I was serving. I kind of had to be there. I had to give this person that thing, and so I'm here, and I wouldn't otherwise be here. I certainly don't feel the things that I think I should feel or can say the things I think I should say or have done the things I think I should do, and yet, all the same, the offer comes. 
invitation comes. This is my body and this is my blood given for you. One way I can imagine the act of worship at the table is in kind of this rehabilitative context that Peter goes through. At the table, we're able to own up to the many ways in which we've fallen and failed and and say, despite the fact that I've failed, my faith is not going to fail me. My faith will somehow be deepened and transformed through this. Despite the fact that I've done what I've done and experienced what I've experienced, I will respond yet again. Christ's voice comes out for me. I'll say, I love you. And we'll receive, we'll know where we are, we'll know where we stand, and we'll be able to move forward with whatever that looks like for us. Knowing that it won't look like anything less than loving the people around us, continuing to follow Christ and all the things that we do. Likewise, those who have received such indiscriminate forgiveness we're called to share that with other people. All of us, I think, share an intuition that we would not like to be judged for the things that we've done wrong. And yet it's so hard sometimes to offer that same love, those same assumptions towards others. Right? We said, no, judge me based on my intentions. My intentions were good when I did this, or I just didn't quite know what I was doing. I didn't realize it at the moment. But for other people, we don't want to offer that kind of same understanding Though I denied Christ three times, I'm not so sure about this person next to me who did it three times. But Peter, after this, this moment in rehab, he has no, no, no place to stand to exclude anybody else. Peter says, no, it's, it's open for everyone. Instead of being a barrier towards someone else receiving that forgiveness and reconciliation, I'll be a conduit for that. I'll try to help and encourage produce that. And so this morning as we come to the table, I'd encourage you not to ignore or push away the many ways that we have fallen short of God's glory, fallen short of Christ's command to follow him. But instead have the courage, which is itself a gift from God because of his grace for us, to look those things in the face and still hear Christ call to us. Still respond. Still move forward into the rest of the day, the rest of the week. Once again, committed to follow Christ and share his love with the people around us.